Thanks for pressing play. What is the source of human motivation? How do we go beyond the uh, foo-foo, ha-ha, arm-waving BS of so-called motivational experts and get to the real science behind what motivates people to get things done? This is a particularly powerful conversation this time of year when a lot of people are making, setting new goals. And unfortunately, many of them, as you know, will fail at achieving them just a few months down the road. Our guest today is the author of the number one best-selling, deeply researched, Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. Adam Grant, the number one New York Times best-selling author, says... Her research has consistently produced insights that are both surprising and useful. Her name is Dr. Eilat Fischbach, and she is an award-winning psychologist at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and, get this, the past president of the Society for the Study of Motivation. What you're about to hear is a real, powerful unedited dialogue about what it really takes to get and stay motivated and ultimately get it done. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Our friends at Hallow App are the real relationship network. Social media algorithms that manipulate what we see have proven to be dramatically detrimental to people and our society. On Hallow App, there are no ads, no bots, no likes, no trolls, no followers, no algorithms, no influencers, no censorship, no photo filters, no feed fatigue, no misinformation, and no echo chambers. Hallow App, let's get real. It is the only uh, social app out there that allows you to connect with your real friends, people who have your phone number. Also, Category Pirates, uh, we launched two new books just before the holiday season. And thanks to readers like you, both of those books are number one bestsellers, the Category Design Toolkit and the Marketer's Guide to Category Design, both available now on Amazon.com. Now, as Joy Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. I think I'm actually stunningly uh, not effective. That's how it feels to me in the way that I work is, is like a non-effective person. And uh, why is that? Because my, my, my calendar today is not like what it was when I was an operating executive. When I was an operating executive, it was like, bam, 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 half hour meetings, hour meetings all day, every day, bang, 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 traveling, you know, two, three, four, 500,000 miles a year on a plane, just go, 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 go. And, and that felt very productive to me. Uh, today, I don't have that at all. There are many days where I have one or two things at most on my calendar. And I have a lot of thinking time and a lot of writing time uh, and a lot of reading time. And sometimes I feel like I meander through the day and I did a lot of thinking uh, maybe I did an incredible podcast with an incredible doctor with an incredible new book, but it, it doesn't feel, and I've had to teach myself, you know, there, I guess, and you'll tell me you're the expert, but it seems to me, at least I'm experiencing this in my own life. There are multiple definitions of what effective or productive could look like, because I think if the average productivity expert watched me on a typical day, they would say that guy's not very effective. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's why I sometimes don't like uh, to think about productivity per se, because productivity is, is often being confused with uh, doing something meaningful, right, or, or making actual progress. If you took the day to, to think about a new idea, if you had a new idea for a book today, that would be an incredible day, right? Like, these are the best days for you, and... Uh, uh, they don't involve uh, eight meetings back-to-back. Uh, -back. Meetings are often a waste of time, and so we, we just fill up our time with all this nonsense so we don't have to focus on what matters. It's like we're trying to win the activity contest. Yeah. And the thing that I've learned since I've sort of gone into this new phase of my life of being kind of more of a, a, an author, podcaster, writer guy than a, um, an advisor guy, than an operating guy or an entrepreneur type guy, um, is you, you really can't schedule creativity and innovation uh, Thursdays between 3.30 and 4. It doesn't work that way at all. Absolutely. However, if you don't have time on Thursday between 3 and 4 on any other day of the week, uh, then you will never be creative, right? Uh, so you you need the time, you need to, to bandwidth. And that means that you need to allow big chunks of your day to think about something new. Yes. And I have that, or I guess I've given myself that luxury now. And um, I don't know if you have this experience. I, I try to talk to people about this. I get into sort of a zone with my brain when I'm working on something and I get my headphones on and I like to kind of not be bothered. And generally I'm here in my studio. Sometimes I sit outside in the garden if it's a nice day and, uh, and I put my headphones on, I listen to some of my favorite music and I just go to work on whatever it is. You know, we write a newsletter every week. That's five to 8,000 words, me and my two partners, uh, Eddie and Cole and, you know, companies I'm helping or things that I'm doing, you know, things that require thinking slash creating. And when I just give myself that time, and saying, this might take two hours, this might take six hours. I was talking to a company I'm uh, helping uh, yesterday, and there's a few things that aren't clear to us. And I said, you know, I'm just going to give myself two or three half days in between now and the next time I talk to, in this case, it was the CEO. And I'm just going to not do anything other than think about this stuff and, and write and, and sort of see what happens. And, um, it's interesting. I, now I wish I had done more of that throughout my career than I did. Yeah. Well, creativity requires that you are able to, uh, to sleep on something, that you are able to, to, to think about it without reaching a, a conclusion, without having the solution yet. And, and many people don't like creativity problems because they, they want the quick solution. They want what we call cognitive closure. Uh, and so it sounds like you are pretty comfortable with... Um, I don't have the answer now and it will take a day or a week or a month. And, and it's hard. Okay? If you are a, a high on need for closure, you'll just uh, arrange your work day to have back-to-back -back meetings. Uh, you don't think about anything too hard and you just quickly uh, find solutions for, for things. They are, they are often not creative. Yes. And so... Um so I find this whole thing fascinating. You know, what's the definition of, of productive or effective or, you know, uh, I mean, you've studied this, you've worked on this very hard. It's obvious. That, so first of all, thank you for writing your wonderful new book. And, and a lot of us are trying to figure out how to get more done. Um, but at the same time, there's this weird dichotomy, which is, 
when I hear get it done, what I think is like a to-do list, you know, can I bang through my to-do list? Um, but the reality is right now I have 1,232 unread emails yeah. and I sort of don't care. And so, so I, I, maybe help me sort of with where your thinking and your research and your work has taken you on. What does it mean to get things uh, done? <laughs> So, you know, thank you for having me and really thank you for this wonderful question. Let me tell you a story that when I uh, was looking for a, for a cover for my book, one of the covers that my publisher offered had a to-do list. And, uh, and I said, well, I cannot have a to-do list on the cover because there is no a single thing that I say about a to-do list. I don't have a to-do list in the book. I don't recommend that people will have a to-do list. It's, it's not what I mean by getting things done. Uh, so let's put this off the table. And <laughs> getting things done uh, starts with uh, uh, what, what do you want to do, okay? So thinking about what goals are important for you, okay? What uh, gets priority? Uh, yeah, uh, is it uh, your creativity? Uh, uh, is it uh, uh, taking care of uh, of something, of someone? Um, how these goals work with with each other? So we start by identifying where where we want to be, what we want to do, and then the the second element is monitoring your progress. Okay, so you know, if, if you want to. To have a great idea or start a, a new product or whatever or exercise more how well are you doing and so a lot of the the research in motivation is how people find information on how well they do when do you look back to see how much you achieved okay when do you look ahead to see how much you still need to do how far are you from where you want to be the third element is managing all the other things that are going on in your life. You never want just one thing. So now what happens with the rest? And the fourth is uh, uh, gathering social support. Okay? Who in your life is helping you? Uh, who stands in the way? Uh, how do you get closer to the people that are helping you be the person that you, uh, uh, you want to be? A uh, very broad overview of the, the framework of my work and the book getting done, uh, not a to-do list. God bless you, doctor, for not jamming it. Because I think most of us don't want another to-do list. Most, a lot of us uh, feel like, ah, oh, you know, there, we could never get through that to-do list. And, and we lose sight of what the true outcomes we want are. Um, and so maybe this, I don't know, you tell me, but this to me seems to go to the heart of motivation, what is it we are motivated to do? And then there's the how we want to go about doing it. But but maybe explain to me, obviously your work is centered, your book is centered on motivation. Maybe just define motivation for me and maybe we can jump from there. Uh, motivation is uh, the psychological force that, that moves you. Okay? It's uh, what you need in order to, to get from one place to another. Okay, What you need in order to want to go to get from one place to another and then to to help you actually execute the action to, to get there we sometimes think about it as uh, as, as self-control although i think self-control is, is probably too limiting so let's think about in general how do we get where we want to be in life 
And you know, this is such a fascinating topic. I was talking to some friends about this recently. There seem to be some people for whom they they develop a real clear vision for their, for lack of better description, doctor, their life design. What are the things I would like to achieve? What are the things I would like to experience? What are the kinds of relationships I would like to have? Uh, what's the kind of difference that I would like to make to others in the world and to myself, maybe to the world overall? You know, the big sort of questions we all grapple with in life. And so um, is that sort of where you think the seed of motivation is or where, where, where does motivation live, doctor? <laughs> <laughs> so it starts with identifying what you want to do. Okay, so the, the first step is, is thinking about it. Uh, to give you an example, uh, over the last uh, year or so, uh, many people in America discovered that they don't like their job. Now, we actually knew that because we have surveys where we ask people to reflect on their jobs and about two-thirds of employees in America say that they don't like their job. So we did not need a pandemic to know that many people don't like their jobs. They needed <laughs> They needed a pandemic to, in order to go home and to think, what do I want to do with my life? And maybe it's not the thing that I've been doing nine to five every day. And now we see a process of re-evaluation of people rethinking uh, what what they want to do, what, what they can afford uh, uh, doing. Uh, I think that this is a great first uh, start. It's uh, one of the, the silver lane, lining of this era. Uh, this is how motivation starts. Interesting. Now, there's this conversation I've been having with some friends there are people I know who, uh, so for example, there's another couple in my life, uh, very, very close friends, dear friends. And um, when they got married and so forth, they had a, a long-term plan. They had children uh, from their prior marriages and they had this whole long-term plan. When the, when the youngest goes off to college, they want to move, they want to do this, they want to do that, et cetera, et cetera. And they formulated that plan. They worked towards that plan. And sure enough, they fucking executed it. And they're now living in what has been a more than 10-year plan. And because they're close friends, we get to see them experiencing their life design coming to life. And I could not be more ecstatic for them. It is, it is, is I think, one of the great joys in life when people that you love succeed and have fulfillment and joy. And they share some of that with you. And that's amazing. And I know lots of people like that. However... I know many people who can't seem to see past noon. You know, th th these are people who they don't do any long-term planning. They sort of bobble and bang around in life. I'm sure you know people like this. Maybe they get an inheritance yeah. or they have a positive outcome at work or something and they get a bunch of money and they don't plan with that. They don't build it. They don't grow it. They, they blow it on stupidities and they're just almost like, you know, my cat, your, the cat is in a stimulus response, right? And the cat's not planning for what we're going to do three days from now. The cat wants to play with the chew toy now, yeah. right? Yeah. And if a different chew toy shows up, it go, so it goes from situation to situation. And so I guess my point is, doctor, it seems like there's some people who are like this, that they just, they, they can't for some reason do future oriented life design, life planning. 
And yet, at least in my experience, it's not scientific, but the people that I generally know who are the happiest had some kind of a plan. And like this couple that I mentioned to you, they're, they're overflowing with joy because their life is exactly how they planned it and wanted it to be. And, and they're now loving it. And so why is it some of us have this ability and some people don't seem to? Yeah, uh, you know, so we can make mistakes with planning, but let's put that aside and say that the plan was good. Uh, I love that you made the comparison to your cat. Uh, cats and dogs uh, really live in the present. Uh, uh, humans are better able to think about the future, but, you know, not by a ton. Like we, we all discount future outcomes. If I told you that uh, uh, I'm going to give you $100 in a year, you're going to be uh, uh, much less excited than if I uh, uh, suggested to give it to you now. If I uh, told you that you're going to uh, meet a good friend in in a month, you will be less excited than if I told you that this friend is actually on the way to to see you now. Our brain very much is in the present, okay? We like things to happen now, and if they are delayed, they don't quite feel as exciting, and we we are less uh, uh, motivated. And then you are right that people vary on that. We can actually measure how much people can think about the future and can plan for the future. What we basically measure is how much people discount outcomes or discount rewards because they are they are far in the future okay hopefully i'm not too academic here so like how much you can save for retirement which is a function of whether you that you feel a connection to that person that you will be uh, uh, when you retire that you you care in the present about these uh, future outcomes and those that are uh more future-oriented, they uh, do better. They, in particular, do better with self-control problems. Okay, So when it gets to to saving, studying, um, launching a career, uh, uh, maintaining a relationship that is not cheating, uh, not drinking, these are all uh, behaviors that... Don't bring up not drinking. That's just ridiculous. But keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Drinking in moderation. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And so if I'm like, in my case, maybe you could coach me a little bit. I have some people that I love in my life who are terrible at this. And I know for me in my own life, you know, I'm 53 now. Well, I really want to say thank you to 23-year-old me. Mm -hmm and 33-year-old me, and 43-year-old me, because that dude set this dude up beautifully. And it also makes me think about, you know, I have a father-in-law who's turning 91, and he's in great shape, he's doing great, and all that. And he's an incredible inspiration on many dimensions. But one of them is, I look at it and go, what do I want 93-year-old me to thank 53-year-old me about? To your point on, you know, moderation, and don't... and so. If, if I know and love people in my life who for whatever reason have, a, 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 in my opinion, maybe it's overly critical, but a diminished capability in this regard, how, how can we help people who don't have this ability or, or don't exercise this ability or tell me how you want me to think about it? How do we help people have some of that in their life if they don't? Yeah, what you're describing is a, a great connection to your future self. Okay, you look at that person in the future and you say, This is me. 
Okay, and because this is me, then I, I care about that person. A another person might look at this person, and a twenty-year-old might look at the, uh, the, the forty-year-old that they are going to be, and say, "I, I, I don't care about this person." Okay, and if you don't care about this future self, then you really should not put aside anything for them. Okay, you really should not live your life for for that person that you don't care for. And so, I, I would start with that. Uh, thinking about why you should care about this person, why this person is not like a stranger that you'd never do anything for. It's it's actually a close person to you. It's it's you. Okay? Uh, when people feel this connection, then they are more likely to, to think about what this person would have liked me to do. You're also describing yourself, and, and, and I think I... Looking at uh, at what you did, I completely believe you as as a patient person. Okay, this is basically patience. Okay, uh, saying that I will do something today, thinking about how it will help me in the future, requires uh, uh, some patience, which is is hard. Okay, so you know, one one advice that I uh, give people based on our research is. Uh, Think about uh, uh, what, what you love about these delayed outcomes. Think about what, what you're going to love about yourself in the future. And once you, once you love this person and once you love the rewards that they are going to get for what you do today, then it feels a bit more enticing to, to do what's right for them. Hmm. Yes. I also assume that maybe, and you'll hopefully tell me, that the opposite can be true. In other words, you could be somebody who's so future-oriented, uh, you're incredibly careful about every cent you spend, about every piece of food you eat, of everything you do, every minute, no, 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 because you, you're so much planning for 10 years from now or 20 years from now or what have you, you're, you over-rotate on that and you're not having fun and your friend says, oh, let's go to this nice restaurant. You say, well, I'm, whatever it is, right? You, 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 you over-restrict yourself from experiences in the present because you're maybe over-planning for the, the 73 or 83 or 103-year-old version of you. And so is this a spectrum or, or how do you want us to think about this? It is a spectrum. And uh, uh, yes, you could be... Uh, um in theory, at least too much uh, future-oriented. And, and the problem is exactly as you describe it, that if, if I always plan for the future, then you know the, the future is never the present. Therefore, I never get to enjoy the thing, right? Like if, I, if I'm always uh, uh, saving uh, for some future expenses, uh, uh, well, I, I might uh, uh, die with a nice saving account. Okay, like, uh, I, I will never go on an amazing vacation. Uh, I say in theory because um, we don't really see many people struggling with being too future-oriented. Okay, we <laughs> we see more people closer to your cat than to this hypothetical person that plans to uh, start living their life. <laughs> is that a is that a statement on the evolutionary of or the evolutionary status of, of human beings, Doctor? <laughs> That's a nice hypothesis. Maybe uh, give us uh, another many years and we'll be uh, uh, too much future-oriented. <laughs> yeah, but we, we are still close to our animal nature enough. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other part of this I find really fascinating, and I, I don't know if this arc is a normal arc. I'm hoping you can tell me. When I was a younger person, I was all about the outcomes, particularly in business. 
you know, I was somebody that grew up uh, with a single mom and a very modest beginning and we didn't have very much and so forth and so on. And so producing some outcomes really mattered to me because when you have nothing and you want to achieve something um, economically or otherwise, uh, you get very focused on that. And as a younger person, the question in my life was, well, is Christopher going to make it, you know? And so I needed to go solve that. Is Christopher going to make it problem? And then what happened over time is, at least for me, and I've, I've had this conversation with many others, when you start having some outcomes in your life and you start achieving some financial security or you start uh, producing some pretty significant uh, contributions in your chosen field or you start having really successful relationships, maybe you get married, maybe you have a really close friend group that you, you know, you're, you're building a, a real life, you know, what you could think of as a 360 degree life. And so you all of a sudden there's outcomes and at least for me, I could sort of, the chip on my shoulder got a little less and I could sort of calm down a little bit. And now my joy, and I of course love the outcomes, but my real joy now is the process and this concept of trust the process and enjoy the process. You know, as a writer, I love the writing. Is it great when the book hits number one? Of course it is. That extrinsic result is a very powerful and validating and, and, and thing to celebrate for sure. However, uh, and I see this with my, I have two partners, Eddie and Cole, and uh, Eddie's a few years younger than me and, and Cole's 30. And, and so you see this spectrum amongst the three of us, Cole wants the outcomes and I love the process and I love the outcomes too. But the joy for me in writing today is that I get to write the joy for me in podcasting today is that I get to podcast. And, and so I guess my question is sort of um, this extrinsic, intrinsic, this process of doing the thing versus the outcomes, be they financial, be they recognition, be they whatever they are. How do you think about sort of these elements in motivation? Yeah, I, I think that it's really hard to stick with something that is only extrinsically motivating for a long time. Okay? That enjoying the process is, is absolutely critical. Uh, now, often when people set goals, it's uh, uh, because they the, the process is not enjoyable or at least not enough. Okay, So people resolve to uh, save money or uh, uh, eat less or, or whatever, Okay, because uh, uh, they, they think that it's important and, and they don't enjoy doing it. Uh, however, if you can find the process enjoyable, if you can find meaning in the process, uh, you have just much better chance at, uh, at success. I, I, I can give you, you know, a story from an experiment that, that we ran in which we offered people uh, a choice between uh, a low-paying task, uh, which was listening to uh, Hey Jude, uh, and then answering some questions, uh, or a high-paying task, which was listening to an alarm clock, okay, quite loud and, and, and annoying. And I, I, I think that uh, the way you describe your young self, okay, like the, the person who wants to, uh, to get the money and wants to feel comfortable, uh, you would choose the alarm clock. Actually, three-quarter of our participants chose the alarm clock. Okay? They, they came to our study for the money and they were focused on, on getting that, uh, they regretted that. 
uh, after the doing after doing the task, uh, the people that uh, uh, listened to the song uh, said, "Oh, that that's good. I want to do it again." <laughs> uh, the other people said, I, "I don't want to ever participate in your experiments again." Like, that was awful. <laughs> <laughs> But you said three quarters of the people chose the alarm clock. Yeah. So they are young, right? <laughs> Is that, is that how it skews? I mean, is it that obvious that the vast majority of the younger folks take the bigger near-term outcome? Is that, is that what the research shows us? Uh, well, this is not, that was not this particular uh, study, although uh, understanding, the, uh, understanding the importance of the, the process is an insight that many people develop with age. Uh, the reason the three-quarter chose that the annoying task is because they were just trying to maximize their payoff. Okay, it's it's the reason people choose a career that they uh, will hate uh, because it pays well because it you know, it's something that the parents uh, uh, want them to do. Like, they, they don't enjoy the process. Now they might learn to enjoy the process. Okay, mm -hmm. in which case, great. Okay, uh, but. If you don't enjoy the process, then uh, you are part of this large group of people that are looking to do something else with their lives. Thank you for that. Now, an another thing I think, certainly I hear, and it seems to be in the air a lot if you read about these sorts of topics, that some people say, well, I, I understand all this, doctor, but I don't know what motivates me. I haven't found my passion. I haven't, so I'm not motivated by anything. I'm not called to anything. I don't know that I have a particular talent or anything. I'm, maybe I'm not a bad person. Maybe I'm not a stupid person. Maybe I'm, you know, I'm a person who, who wants to do some things, but I, I'm, I'm not motivated doctor. So <laughs> sort of crack that one open for me. because this is something yeah. I tend to hear a lot. Yeah, this is when we subscribe the motivation pill. You take it twice a day and it does absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. The, uh, is it the so, red pill or the blue pill, doctor? <laughs> ideally both. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, this is an important point. I, uh, you know, as, uh, as a society, we, we often have this myth that... Uh, That, that you find your passion, that uh, uh, it just it reappears in front of you one day, right? And, and you were not searching, you were not working. It, it just uh, uh, came about. You know, Carol Dweck, uh, uh, she's a, a psychologist at Stanford, uh, uh, did some uh, great work on, uh, uh, on people finding their passion. <laughs> And as it turned out, uh, people that believe that that passion passion just reemerge, uh, they as, as soon as they get the the first hint that this is hard, they say, "Oh no, like I'm not interested." And I, I, I in particular, I like one study because th this is a a study on people learning our black holes, and I'm interested in black holes because I'm also the mother of. Uh, uh, an astrophysicist and who studies black holes, and it's really hard to understand black holes. And in Carol Dweck's study, when people get the, like the first uh, clue that this is hard, if they believe in this like, passion theory, the idea that it just emerges in front of you, they say, oh, I guess that's not for me. Okay. But if they have what she referred to as a growth mindset, if they understand that understanding 
what you want to do in life, figuring out your, your path takes a lot of work, then the, the challenge is challenging. <laughs> they, they, they want to engage. They, they want to, to learn. So we, are, we, we probably as a culture just overemphasized how much uh, uh, your, your calling will just uh, appear in front of you without work. It requires work. So the mindsets around this I find so fascinating. That mindset to me is a, a, a and this is sort of an undeclared context that I think happens in our world. You'll I w- want to hear your reaction, but that your job is to go out and find your passion, to discover what it is. Yeah. And, and I understand that. And, and we do that, I think you'll tell me, but by trying different things that look interesting to us. Um, but that paradigm to me, doctor, misses a whole other thing, which is, I believe that the human being is most self-actualized when she's creating. I think we were all here to create things. Yeah. And so there's this, there's this notion that passion or motivation is something we find. And sometimes that's the case. However, I have found in my own life and in talking to many others that it's actually not just that, that it's some magical combination of creation and discovery. And sometimes it's more, you know, some people just discover it quickly. They sit down at a piano and, or, you know, and there it is, right? And God bless them. But some of us, that doesn't happen. And, and we, as we're trying to find our place, we realize, hey, shit, there is no place for us. And so the only answer then, at least this has been my experience, is we must create our own place. We must create the thing. And so how do you think about this sort of mindset around, well, discovering your motivation versus sort of taking, if you will, some responsibility and go create your motivation? Well, the whole process of uh of motivation is, is about creating, okay? It's, it's about doing something. Like it, it's not, um, it, it doesn't just appear in front of you. It's, it's the process of uh, finding something that you want to do or you, you think that you want to do and, and then doing it, okay? And, and then getting stuck, okay? And, uh, and overcome that, okay? And that, nice thing about the, the process of creating anything is that uh, uh, it's not a linear process, okay? It's right that, you, 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 yeah, it's like exactly, you're showing me with your hand, it's all over the place, okay? Like you, you, there's so many dead ends, okay? And you discover that this is not the way to do it, okay? Or this is not the way you can do it. And then you look for a different way. And it's, it's the whole journey of doing something which keeps you energized, which makes you happy, and which allows you to connect to other people who are doing these things, right? Or who support you, what you're doing. Like that, that our motivation is often the, the basis for our relationship. We connect to people because they are somehow helpful in our journey. They teach us, they do it with us, they, you know, they support us. So, Yes, I agree. It's a process of, uh, it's journey, okay? It's, it's, a, it's a process, uh, and I love that you refer to, to the element of, of creating because it's really, uh, it's about finding what you want to do, what it's finding your your voice. It's, uh, no, motivation is not, uh, uh, 
it's not one thing for you know, all of us. So we we need to search and we need to find our way uh, calling, which you know, I, I'm usually much more on the research than uh, uh, on the abstract statements that I make here. But uh, yeah, um, hmm. I agree and so with there's you. so yeah. there's this other paradigm that sort of is generally unquestioned, which is we... So I'm, I, I try to be, doctor, a student of languaging, the sort of strategic use of language to mm-hmm. change thinking. And I try to be aware of my own and others, what I would call uh, lazy or unexamined languaging, because, of course, language creates thinking. And so, for, so there's this undeclared context that sort of life is just this thing that happens, like the weather. And we hear it in our language. How's life treating you? Or, or I was with a friend yesterday and we were talking about some things he wants to do in his business. And I was, you know, we we're jamming on some ideas and so forth and so on. And I could tell he was feeling fairly excited about some of these things. And then at the end of that part of the conversation, he says, well, we'll just have to see what happens. <laughs> and I interrupted him and I said, well, what do you mean? Just see what happens. Like you don't have a say in the matter. And so, yes, there are certain things that just happen to us in our lives. We lose people that we love. Uh, Horrible things can happen. Great things can happen. Serendipity is a wonderful thing if we're paying attention to it. Um, But there's a lot of this language that leads to thinking that sort of says, well, you know, life, my future is is really the weather. And if it's sunny today, then I'm having a sunny day. And if it's raining, then... And so I guess my point is, how do you think about sort of the components of life that just happened to us versus us being sort of proactive in the matter and creating our life and sort of, how do you think about that dance in the journey? Yeah. So first, just a small comment because we are both writers and I don't know if you also teach other people to write, but one of the biggest thing in teaching people to write is to get them to not use passive language. (laughs) really passive language should be avoided as much as you can. Active voice, active voice, active voice, active voice. (laughs) Exactly. I just use passive language to say that you should never use passive language. (laughs) Uh, Yes, but to your question. So it's very basic for all the social sciences, and I'm a social psychologist, so certainly for me, but also for like economists, sociologists, uh, everyone believes that uh, that the context matters, okay? that uh, you are influenced by the situation, which means that uh, circumstances are, are important uh, and will influence what you do, okay? like what job you will choose, uh, who you will uh, marry, uh, whether you will have children. Okay. But as a motivational scientist, there are two important things that we know. First is that people can choose their situation. So you can put yourself in that situation that facilitates the outcomes that you want to achieve. And that framing matters. Okay, You can think about the same thing as one or another okay? and make that. Now, the best example for that is, is when things don't work out and I've done a ton of research on learning from failure and why people don't learn from failure. And you know, when when you fail, basically, framing matters, okay? Did, 
do you see this as a setback or do you see this as a, as a signal from God that uh, you are doing the, the wrong thing? That's not your calling. So you need to put yourself in the right context. And when things happen, you can control how you think about this. You can control your thoughts. And so this one is also fascinating for me, doctor. I, I love the uh, whole discussion of, of failure and, and losing. We actually invented a word around here called losery to make losing feel better than it does. <laughs> and so... On one hand, yes, framing matters. One of our other favorite expressions around here from a, a category design and marketing and business point of view is frame it, uh, name it, and claim it. So the yeah. framing of things, and we often say the context matters more than the content, right? Because if a stand-up comedian gets on stage and walks out in front of a large audience and says, good evening, motherfuckers, and everybody laughs. And if the CEO of IBM starts off the earnings call with good afternoon, motherfuckers, a uh, very different reaction. And it could be exactly the same audience. So, so conversation is, or context is, is everything. So on that regard, as it relates to failure and losing, how, how do we find the, on one hand, when we fail, it can be very powerful to own the failure. But at the same time, of course, we don't want to be defeated by the failure. We want to own it and be able to move forward. You know, uh, one of my favorite expressions is if you put whipped cream on dog shit, people are still going to know it's dog shit, right? And so when you failed, there is some power to owning the failure. But to your point on the context, it's one thing to say I failed or I lost. It's a whole other thing to say I'm a failure or I'm a loser. Yeah. And so this is another one of these fun lines to dance on between sort of owning it, learning from it, uh, not bullshitting yourself about it, but at the same time, not being defeated by it. And so what does the research tell us about uh, learning from failures? A lot. Uh, let me start with uh, now the, the classic research that refers to uh, uh, defining the, the failure as, as yourself, okay, seeing yourself as, as failure. And, and this is research by uh, Martin Seligman, who uh, looked at learned helplessness. And what he found is that he started with dogs, and it's actually a, a bad experiment in terms of the dog's experience. Uh, uh, the, the dogs learned that they cannot control electric shock, that electric shocks will just happen, just terrible in in no one. Uh, luckily, we, I, I hope we don't do studies like this uh, uh, today. But what was interesting is that these dogs were then moved to a, 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 another place where they could control the electric shocks. They, they could move and they... they they would avoid the electric shock. The electric shock only happens in one side of the room, not in the other. And they didn't move. Okay, They were just like, uh, bad stuff happens. Okay, Just like, I, I'm a failure, kind of. You know, obviously dogs don't have a personality theory in, in, in their mind, but they just like, this This is the world. Okay, uh, Seligman then tested it with people, with noise, and also found that people, when they... Like they, they hear a, a loud noise uh, uh, and they learn that they cannot control it. Later on, when they will be in another room with loud noise, they will not try to see where is the, the way to turn it off. Uh, this research really helped us understand that what is the bad lesson from, from failure. And, and the bad lesson is that the world is just 
bed. Okay, there's nothing that they can do about it. And we, you know, we we often as society sometimes uh, uh, blame blame the victim in in the sense that we we tell people why didn't you do something about it? Okay, uh, with uh, domestic uh, abuse, for example, we. We asked the victim, why, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you do something about it? And, and the reason is because they they learned that this is their situation and there is nothing that they can do about it. Okay? They, they got to the wrong conclusion from their really negative experience. Now, to uh, another thing that can happen, and this is a much less uh, horrific uh, experiment that uh, my uh, colleague, uh, Lauren Eskris Winkler, and I uh, ran, uh, we uh, taught people new information. And the way we taught it is that we had you guess something, like a guess uh, uh, what is this uh, symbol in a language that you don't know? Is it uh, an animal or an object? And we found out that if people guess incorrectly, they don't learn. If they guess correctly, they do learn, even though there were only two options. Okay, so you know, if I ask you what a symbol means, is it an animal or an object? And you guess object, and I told you that you were wrong. You should know it's an animal. There were only two options, <laughs> and still people don't learn. Now here, the problem with failure is not that you made some attribution to yourself that you concluded that you can do it or that the world is, is cruel. You just didn't pay attention. Okay. You, you, you just like, you know, if you get negative feedback, you just don't care. You don't pay attention. You don't bother to learn. And a lot of what happens when we get negative feedback, when we, when we hit those roadblocks is that we just like ignore it repeating our mistakes because we, we didn't stop to extract the lesson is yet another barrier. Fascinating. Uh, one of the things in this regard is, of course, you have no experience of what it's like for people to be with you. And neither do I. We have an experience of ourself. We have an experience of you and I being together now. But I don't know what it's like to be in a conversation with me and you don't know what it's like to be in a conversation with you. And so on one hand, maybe it's a protection mechanism. We, if people say negative things about us, we don't want to, you know, call our, we don't want to dogpile on ourselves and destroy our own psychology. But at the same time, you know, some people tell us things that are negative about ourselves that we should pay attention to and, and learn from. But because we have no experience of being with ourselves, how do we tell doctor between F that guy, who cares? I, I'm not, I don't, you know, so he thinks I'm an idiot. Uh, you know, I'm somebody who gets criticized on social media all the time and I don't give a shit, right? Versus, hey, wait a minute. Don't, I shouldn't be so arrogant. Um, this person's telling me something about my behavior, my conduct, what have you. I need to learn from this. This is this is costing me in my life to continue this approach. How do we find that line between the idiot on Twitter and somebody who's really truly saying something to us who is not just trying to be mean but is trying to help us? Yeah, well, you know, sometimes it's easy. Right? Like uh, I, I, no, when uh, when someone uh, tells me that uh, I speak nonsense, then I. I don't know that there is a lot to learn from that. Okay? Uh, when uh, someone uh, uh, tells me that uh, I should 
use less academic lingo than maybe uh, that is uh, useful information. <laughs> maybe I should learn. Uh, but what we find is that uh, how much you can force this negative feedback and, and learn from it really depends on, uh, on how much you're already committed to your goal, how much you already know that it's your thing. When you start something new and you get negative feedback, that will destroy your motivation and uh, and you're often right to ignore it. Okay, like I, I don't play basketball and if you ever find me trying to do that, uh, please don't tell me that I don't do it well because, you know, I, I'm not very committed and it will destroy my motivation. But uh, when it comes to being a, a psychologist or, you know, for you being a, being an author, okay, uh, uh, we are pretty confident that this is our thing and we are more open to uh, negative feedback to the extent that it is uh, helpful. They're trying to help us. So commitment is the key. Interesting. And I've seen it discussed, and I, maybe you'll tell me if there's some research about it, that uh, when giving feedback, particularly to a newer type of student or a newer type of learner, that a one to three or a one to five rate, you know, so for every one negative thing you say to me, you need to say three positive or five positive to kind of keep stoking my motivation in this case to play basketball um, and, and empathy from the teacher realizing that this is your first day on the court or your 10th day on the court. And, you know, I used to play in the NBA and so I, I can't be having some comparison between you and I, I have to have empathy and positive reinforcement with a little bit of coaching on the margin in the beginning is the right answer. But is that what the research tells us, doctor? Yeah. So I think that the research that you're referring to with the one to five ratio was actually about uh, uh, couples giving each other feedback. And because we are very sensitive for the negative comments that we hear from the people that we care about most, for every negative comment that they have made, they had to then say five positive things to just be where they were in the relationship before they started. Okay, so basically, when you say something nasty to your partner, it, it will require a lot of work to then bring the relationships to to where they were. Uh, but negative feedback doesn't need to be nasty. It can just highlight what's missing. And we know that when people feel strong, committed, that they are more interested in in hearing how they can improve. Uh, they, uh, they, so they seek this feedback, they are open to this feedback, they learn more uh, from it, they are less likely to, to ignore it. Uh, it's not impossible to uh, learn from negative feedback, it's just pretty hard. Your cat cannot do this probably. Hmm. Well, I just have to tap him on the nose sometimes when he does dumb shit. <laughs> that's, about, that's about as far as we go. Um, uh, and so, and I guess there's also, you know, I hear this a lot from teachers and from uh, athletic coaches. You know, I'm somebody that is always getting trained in things because I'm always doing things that I'm not particularly great at. You know, I go to Pilates and yoga and I train martial arts and, you know, it's like I, I spend a lot of time doing things that I suck at getting coached. Uh, and so as a, as a recipient of a lot of fairly regular coaching, one of the things I learn over time, of course, is not just the thing, but 
the power of the effectiveness of the coach. And so there's an empathetic way of saying you're doing it wrong um, without saying particularly those words. You might say, well, you know, you, you might want to try this technique and see, see if that's more effective for you or, you know, gentler ways, essentially, of providing, quote unquote, constructive criticism from somebody who's come forward and said, I, I would like to learn more about yoga and I would like to learn to improve my, you know, my left jab and I'm here to learn. I'm here to get better. And so are there techniques that, that science can share that help us communicate in ways that uh, open people up versus shut people down? So we found that people are actually not bad at uh, intuiting how much a person is open to negative feedback. Like people are giving more negative feedback to someone who has been on a team for a long time than, than novice and like people did this in experiment just by learning that this presentation was done by someone new. They were trying to be a, a, a bit more positive. Where we see a mistake is that uh, people often underestimate how much the person in front of them feels like they are new and uh, is not sure about their commitment. Yeah, in particular, in, a, uh, you know, in the context of teaching and, and school, like you, you often make as a teacher you often make the mistake of underestimating how unsure the student is that they can do it okay and if you're totally so unsure, i hate to interrupt you professor but d does that mean you want to be cognizant of sort of their level of motivation for learning or, or I, I want to make sure i understand this point you're on you thank you you, you want to be aware that they might take the wrong lesson from negative feedback. Let's take your Pilates example. If I tell you that the way you are doing it is totally wrong, you might infer that maybe Christopher should do something else in order to keep in shape. Okay, so you will learn, but the wrong lesson. Or that you will not learn at all, okay, that you will not be able to remember what I said because you stopped listening as soon as it didn't seem like it's going to be encouraging. And so we want to make sure that the person is open, like is sufficiently confident, is sufficiently able to get this feedback and, and still uh, try again. The, another problem with negative feedback, and I have like, I, I have a whole chapter about negative feedback. I'm, I'm very interested in, in this uh, topic is that when we give negative feedback, we are often very abstract. We often they make this general statement that just is not sufficiently helpful for the person. And so I, I looked at a lot at uh, uh, performance evaluation that people uh, give and, and get at work. In my classes, when students practice performance evaluation, they are uh, usually just uh, too vague and... Um, and, and and unwilling to elaborate about negative performance, which makes it harder for the the other party to learn. So does that mean that specificity matters a lot when we're when we're trying to help somebody improve? Yeah. So so negative feedback can be specific. Actually, negative reviews online tend to be specific. Okay, and you know, on average. Uh, that, uh, so negative feedback, when it's specific, when it refers to the details, when it shows you what what went wrong and hopefully how to do it right, uh, then it's helpful. But 
we sometimes intuitively, because we don't want to engage with the negative feedback, we kind of brush through it and mm-hmm. not, not, not give the details. It's interesting. You know, you got me thinking about my Pilates instructor and she's, she's absolutely incredible. And one of the things that I really appreciate is, you know, in every session I do countless things the wrong way and she'll identify it. She'll tell me what it is. She'll say, oh, you're compensating with the way you're holding your back or what, you know, whatever the thing is that I'm doing. And more often than not, of course, when we're learning, we don't even know we're doing it, right? We don't, it's not a conscious decision. And so she'll identify it. She'll be very specific about it. Sometimes she'll name the muscle that's in the wrong spot or doing the wrong thing or what have you. And if I can't correct it after she specifically verbalizes it, she'll come and she'll just tap me gently in the back. And then, and then I'll realize, oh, she wants me to move my, or whatever it is. Right. And there, so there's a, a, in this case, it's a physical thing. So if the verbal correction doesn't result in what she wants, she'll just gently direct my attention to that part of my body by touching. And, and so I guess my point is, assuming we're not coaching somebody in a physical thing like this or skiing or whatever it is, it's, it's maybe a mental thing, a research thing. How do we do the equivalent of that uh, to get super specific? Because when she does that for me, I can then correct it and it works great. You're right. Negative feedback is effective when it's specific and Often negative feedback is specific. Okay? So if we are willing to engage, we will often uh, uh, do get in, in the details. Uh, to, uh, to give you an example, uh, uh, if you ask me how, how am I doing today and I feel good, I will just say, fine, thank you. If I don't feel good and I say, ah, I n- not so good, then I will probably explain, right? I will realize that Negative information needs to come with some elaboration, with some explanation. And so negative information is useful. It has a lot of information. Uh, it is often better, okay? Uh, often when we, we look at uh, just how many words people have to describe something, uh, they, if they are happy, they use fewer words and the, these words tend to be similar. If they are unhappy, they have many words and they are dissimilar. Uh, the, so it's not hard to design negative feedback that is, that is good, that is uh, specific. The barrier for the f- person who gives the feedback is that they try to avoid it, okay? that they don't want to go into the difficult conversation, and then it doesn't happen. The barrier for the person who receives the information is that they might never listen. Okay, so maybe you did get uh, the tap on the exact muscle that, that is not right, but if you're too concerned about your ego and what does it mean about your, like for your future in Pilates, then you, you're not listening. Okay? You, you're not getting the information. And it's really hard. Like, it, there are so many examples of people not learning from failure. It, it's, it's hard. Hmm. So one of the techniques I learned uh, early in my 20s from a mentor of mine was in this regard exactly, before providing feedback, to literally say to the person, hey, you just did my feedback about that. And what I have found, doctor, is that just that moment interrupts the flow of the conversation. If the other person is having some trepidation around, oh no, I might be about to hear something I don't want to hear, 
it, it, it takes a pause. So it softens me as well if I'm getting ready to let them, you know, hear something they might not like, love hearing. But at the same time, it puts the control in their hand. And when I was a younger man, if you said no, I might give it to you anyway. <laughs> but, but today, and hopefully for quite some time in my life, if the answer is no, I don't really give a shit. Okay, great. Then let's move on. Uh, and so I, I just want to bounce that technique off you. I've been using it for a long time. I'm curious what your reaction is. So we want a study in which we tell people we have two things to, to tell you. Okay, one is good, one is bad. We're only going to tell you one of them. Which one do you want to hear? When you present it in this way, actually the majority of the people wanted to know the bad thing. Okay, partially <laughs> because they were really curious, right? Like you, you assume that you do things right. So you assume that uh, if I tell you what you did wrong, there is maybe new information. So they were just really curious. We also found, uh, which was even more interesting for us, that uh, uh, those who felt like experts were more interested. Okay, so like the, <laughs> the more comfortable you are with where you are in life in general and in this call in particular, means that you were more likely to turn off the, the note with the negative information and say, well, if I can only hear one thing, I want that. But what I like about your strategy is that you kind of prompt the person to say, I have something to tell you. But you need to ask. Okay. <laughs> Which is great. You need to be an active learner. We know that learning and development only happens when you engage in it. Okay. When you do the work, it's not about me lecturing to you. Yes. One of the other things I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on is um, sort of a mindset. Again, something I learned fairly early. And not that I'm perfect at it, far from it, but. But some of us can, can, can be tricked into a right-wrong mindset. You and I are having a conversation, and my job in the conversation is to prove to you I'm right and to win you over to my point of view. You think the same thing, and we're sort of having this somewhat adversarial thing. A, a different mindset to that is a curiosity mindset. And even in an area that I'm an expert in, or, you know, this is your area of expertise, of course, having a curious mindset, well, hmm, why do you think that? Why do you say that? Another one of my favorite expressions is, hmm, and I try to stop myself from being judgmental and say, tell me more about that. And so I, I have tried over the years, and again, I'm far from perfect, but to not sort of instantly react from a right-wrong perspective, but to try to be more of a curious person, particularly when somebody is like vehemently against something that I think is correct. And so I'm, I'm curious how you think about these types of mindsets and how, how we cultivate a more open uh, way of being. So uh, one strategy that has been studied is asking people to explain. Okay, explain how does it work? Explain how uh, how did you uh, come to believe in uh, in this? Uh, the the act of explaining, in particular, when there is causality involved, often makes people more modest. Okay, so I was absolutely one hundred percent sure in what I told you until you asked me to explain it. And as I was trying to explain it, I realized that maybe I don't quite know exactly how things work and I become less sure of my views. I'm absolutely with you. Ask people to explain. 
Okay. The other thing that I, I like about asking people to explain is that, and this is something that I uh, often use when I uh, teach uh, people to negotiate, uh, is that it requires you to to listen to the other side, right? And a lot of the conversation is we, we just, uh, we, we broadcast our opinions. We don't really listen. And if we do this exercise of, can you tell me what I just told you? Okay, can you explain what I think, not just what you think? That's hard. Like you, you would really need to, to listen. And so that, let, let's do it more in our relationships. Ask each other to. Explain what they think and explain what we think. I love that. God bless you for that. And there, to just pop the hoodie further on this one. So my assessment is we live at a time where what most people call thinking is really the retweeting of something somebody else said that we like. And one of our favorite expressions around here is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. So you pick any hot button topic in the United States. I'll just pick one that everybody's angry about all the time. Guns. I'm anti-gun. No gun. Ah, Second Amendment. Okay. But you ask most people, okay, well, why do you feel the way you do about guns? And they can give you a first pass answer. And there's a management technique I learned early on, which is ask why five to seven times. Because if you ask why enough times, sooner or later, you can unpack something. So you say, okay, well, the reason I'm pro-gun is, or the reason I'm anti-gun is, okay, well, tell me more about that. Why? And that's about it. Most people, even on a really important topic that they seem to feel very strongly about, can't go past two, maybe three whys. And here's the part that I'm really curious to get your insight on. When you get somebody into that position and they begin to realize, hey, wait a minute, I haven't really fucking thought about this. I saw this on TV. I heard this on the internet. It felt right to me. My parents think this, my friends, whatever it is. And so I'm just really mentally retweeting other people's thinking as opposed to having my own thoughts. When you, when, when they have that aha, what I have found is we've lost the ability to have real dialogue in general. And they just then revert back up to the sound by, well, it's the second amendment, you idiot. And they just sort of leave it at that. Right. Or nobody should be allowed to have guns. I mean, come on. We don't want people walking around killing each other. And they just sort of stay at that high level soundbite level because you ask them why a few times their logic crumbled in their own lap. And so they don't want to go any further with you. Even if you weren't trying to put them in a corner, so to speak, they sort of might feel that way. And then they just scream the headline at you. And, and that's that. And, and no dialogue happens, no thinking, no learning happens. And so a, I'm curious about your assessment of that. And B, if you have any insights about when we are trying to ask people, how do we get them to keep, unpacking to keep popping the hood and keep going yeah what you are describing is uh, uh, the, the common debate which feels more like a, a war than a, a discussion right there is no exchange of ideas because uh, they, no one was uh, really uh, listening and uh, uh, you know that 
what we need to understand is that uh, to persuade someone of anything uh, means that they need to persuade themselves. Okay, you're not going to convince me. Only I'm going to convince myself. Uh, and the reason only uh, I'm going to convince myself is because I really trust my thoughts more than anybody else's thoughts, right? Uh, the, uh, <laughs> there is the story of uh, uh, the mathematician uh, John Nash. Who, uh, uh, I don't know if you know the story. There was a, the, the movie, The Beautiful Mind, and, and also the book. He was a schizophrenic patient, okay? So he... he believe that there are aliens that are like taking over his mind and like all, all, all these like impossible uh, uh, beliefs. Okay? He was also a, a mathematician and a, and a really smart guy. And, and, and so people asked him like, how come someone that is so intelligent can believe that, that aliens are communicating with you in all these crazy ways? And he had the insight to say, I believe that nonsense because it came from the same place that my mathematician uh, ideas came from, okay, which is my mind. Okay, So if your mind tells you something which is really crazy, you would still believe in it because it comes from within. Back to how, how should you use it in persuasion. Once you understand that the only way you can persuade me of anything is by getting me to persuade myself, your tactic should not be giving me extremely loud arguments or even extremely convincing arguments, okay? Your tactic should really be asking me the kind of questions that will lead me to discover new information that will convince me. So this is just me, uh, uh, like, uh, saying in a very long way why your strategy of just asking why seven times uh, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> Asking why, suggest how I can look for information, uh, uh, how should we think about this, but don't tell me what to think because that doesn't work. Yes, thank you for that. Uh, I'm reminded of a, of a George Carlin joke, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but essentially he says, you ever notice that anybody on the road driving faster than you is a maniac and anybody driving slower than you is an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other part of this that I find fascinating is I'm a person who daily, often multiple times a day, I'm in dialogue with people that I would, that you might think of as sort of discovery slash creation dialogue. We're dealing with a business topic, or in this case, you're trying to teach me and I'm trying to take what you're saying interpret it, play it back to you and see if it fits and back. You know, we're playing a game of intellectual catch, right? Um, and so I'm often in conversations where the purpose of the conversation is the participants in the dialogue are learning slash creating together to come to some kind of a conclusion or at least a, a, a theory, a hypothesis, which we will then go test. It could be as simple as a new marketing program. Uh, yesterday, I had a long call with the CEO of a very early stage company, and they just had, they, 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 they were going in this direction, and they thought it was going to look a certain way, and they had an offsite, and they analyzed a bunch of things, and it blew open a whole new set of thinking, and so he was bouncing that thinking off me, and we were playing with that thinking, and so forth. So I am in many, many dialogues where there isn't a right answer, and the participants are purposely 
trying to create something that's new. And I don't know if I'm right. I bring my experience. You bring your experience. I, I, I am legitimately curious to, as to your thoughts. Uh, uh, and if, if, if the idea that I'm presenting is stupid, I want to know that. I'm not even convinced the idea. I say this a lot, doctor. I say, uh, well, here's the thought I'm having. I don't know that I agree with myself. Or the other one I say is, I reserve the right to disagree with myself later. But this is what's in my head now. So here it is. And so I guess my point is, when you and I are in a conversation where we're trying shit out, we're analyzing things, we're debating things, and even I myself, I'm not suggesting to you that I'm right or that I have the answer. We're actually working on the answer together. How do we uh, approach people in a way so that they understand that's my intention in this conversation? Not to be right. I, I don't know that I even agree with what I'm thinking, but I want us to essentially think together. Yes, I, I I love that. I you know I think that there are very few great things that we do by ourselves. Let me say, say it in a more extreme way. I don't think that we do anything right by ourselves. Right? <laughs> it's always a group. Okay, uh, it could be uh, uh, starting a company. Uh, uh, it could be uh, uh, starting a family. Uh, uh, it could be uh, my research that I uh, do with uh, uh, with my collaborators. Uh, it could be what we do as as a city, as a nation, or you know, or whatever. We we do things with other people, and so the the default should be us doing something together. Okay, it, it's not about me uh, that doing this and you recognize my achievement is uh, that it's about what what we created in our uh, dialogue what we created at uh, uh, working together you and i are right, right now creating a show okay and and it's your show you are leading this but we are still doing it together and once you people understand that that this is what we are doing that we are doing this together that i am uh, uh, not uh, here to evaluate you um, or uh, you know to, to to judge but to to work uh, with you uh, that creates the kind of conversation that we do have with uh, within our team okay? the kind of conversation where ideas are not uh, evaluated by who came up with them but by the merit of the idea. Um, and then if that doesn't happen by yourself, then there are methods such as write the idea without your name. Okay, and let's look at the ideas like that. I like that one, doctor. Write the idea down. Don't put your name on it. We, what, we throw all that in the hat and read them out loud and see what we think. Is that sort of generally the idea? Yeah, yeah. We do that like, for important decisions uh, in, in my uh, group here at, uh, at the University of Chicago. We... Uh, have everybody send an email to one person who collects all these like notes and then put them together and you don't see the name. And even though you can kind of guess because the person who made mistakes in English is probably a yell it still. Uh, <laughs> yes, but you have such a wonderful, charming accent. We, 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 we grant you a lot of uh, leeway in that regard. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's why I would never bother to know. Uh, make myself sound more American. <laughs> now, uh, clearly I could talk to you about this for, uh, we could do a 12 part series on all of this stuff. Um, but I also want to be respectful of your time, doctor. Are, are there any other big learnings that you're presenting in the book that you really want to make sure uh, land in, in, in my brain today? 
Oh gosh, there, there is like so, so much that I wanted to tell people, which is why I uh, wrote a book. Uh, we, in a way, I think that we talk about, we talked about parts of uh, like the three out of four parts of my framework, which is how to, to set a goal, how to get feedback and, and learn as you, you progress on it and how to work with other people. Uh, the part where uh, I would uh, uh, hope to talk to you uh, about in the future is, uh, uh, is multiple goals <laughs> and how to juggle the, the million things that we uh, constantly doing in our modern uh, lives. But, you know, we did a lot for one hour. Well, we, we could do that now if you want, or I'm always, I'd, be, I'd be stoked to have you back. You tell me. I, uh... you, you have to go, don't you? <laughs> Yeah. Let me ask you one. Let me ask you one other question, maybe before I let you go. And and I'd I'd certainly love to have you back. We're living at a fascinating time uh, because of what's going on in the digital world, right? And of course, with the pandemic, we're all in Zoom meetings and things like that. And there's real debate about what the future of work is going to be. And we also, of course, um, in the United States now have more native digitals, that is to say people who grew up with the technology fully embedded, 35 and under, uh, uh, than native analogs, those who did not grow up with the cloud and, 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 and all that, and, and mobile and so forth. So I guess my question then, with that said, does any of this change in your mind about how we do these things in a native digital world? That is to say... If you and I were going to embark on a, a, a meaningful project to both of us, whether it was to write a book or maybe I was going to participate in some of your research, whatever it was. And um, you and I have only met this way and you're in Chicago now, right? Yeah. And I'm in Santa Cruz and we could, we could do a meaningful piece of work together and never quote unquote meet in person. It could all be email, Slack, Zoom, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, does any of this change in your mind based on a more digitally first world as opposed to the world that you and I grew up in, which was analog first? Yeah. <laughs> great question. I don't have a great answer. And I don't have a great answer because I, I, I'm a, a great believer in technology. I think the technology allows uh, great things. And, and, and then I also, I, I have research showing that uh, uh, when people have a meal together, that creates a meaningful connection. Okay, so people are better able to reach a negotiation agreement, or they like each other more, uh, or they just feel more connected if they they share the meal. Okay, you really can't do it on Zoom, and not that people didn't try. Okay, we were all invited for a happy hour uh, over Zoom, and it felt pathetic. Uh, but maybe technology will uh, uh, find ways to get people connected. Uh, so the right of the personal connection is is uh, very limited uh, using technology. Other kind of feedback I think you can get using technology. Uh, exercising now is uh, is a lot uh, online, much more than ever, uh, very much because of the pandemic. Uh, studying. So we'll, we'll see. It's work in progress. Yes. Um, I, I, I have found if you are willing, as a native analog, mm-hmm. if you're willing to work at it, you can build very strong 
personal and professional relationships with people you rarely meet in the uh, analog world. You have primarily digital relationships with. And the other one, this is just a side note. I would love Mm -hmm. it if this was an area of research that either you or some of your colleagues were interested in. You know, we've been studying the differences between native analogs and native digitals around here for a while. Um, And and I I recently had on a gal who is uh, Hannah Grady uh, Williams is her name. And she is a a quote unquote CEO Gen Z advisor. So she advises. She's 23 years old. She's incredibly intelligent. She's written a book. She's very articulate, very compelling. And she advises CEOs on how to recruit Gen Z and how to market to Gen Z and, and so forth and so on. Anyway, during our conversation, I was trying to get very specific with her about some of exactly this. And what became clear at a certain point in the conversation, doctor, is for her, this is a face-to-face conversation. And for you and I, it's not. (laughs) Yeah, so she doesn't think that people have bodies. They're just (laughs) floating heads. Yeah. (laughs) She might turn out to be all right. Uh, I really... uh, I, I... I don't think we have the data. I'm very data oriented. So I would love to see it. I just, it was fascinating to me as I kind of tried to unpack it with her, as I began to realize that she would have said to her friends and family that we had a face-to-face meeting Yeah, and I would not have. And I just found that to be a very illuminating experience. And so as we go forward into more and more, particularly a work world that is more and more digital uh, and we're together less, which seems to be inevitable, how do we cultivate these behaviors of, of curiosity and of openness and of dialogue and collaboration? Many of the things we've spoken about today, um, particularly those of us who are not native digital, um, how do we cultivate that in a digital world? I would love to see some research about that. I uh, I took uh, mental notes here. So, <laughs> well, thank you, know. you doctor. <laughs> All right. Anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Not really. I okay. very much enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you for writing your uh, wonderful new book. Good luck with the book launch and all of that. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, uh, congratulations on the success with your books. Thank you. It's really fun. <laughs> as you know. I-, I hope to be able to let you know. <laughs> I have no doubt. All right. So thank you, doctor. Bye bye. Thank you. Well, there she is, the legendary Dr. Ailette Fishbach. Her book is out. It's available now, and it's already a number one bestseller. It's called Get It Done Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. And if you're looking at a website relaunch soon, they have a rapid relaunch program. Check out A-T-R-E dot N-E-T today. Our friends at Bottleneck dot online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you want a real person who's your assistant, who's nowhere near you, but will help you get a lot more done. Ha ha. Check out bottleneck.online today. And our friends at flowkiosk.com are the leader in iPad kiosks. They are how you engage digitally in a physical space. Check out flowkiosk.com. 
And our friends at NetSuite are the world's number one platform for growing businesses. Check out NetSuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's NetSuite.com slash different. Uh, all right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights uh, do remain uh, perturbed. Uh, please don't forget to tip your wait staff on the way out. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. And our web development is done by RJ and EX. Bobis. Uh, Cedric Burroughs does our gra- uh, graphic design and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the win. We record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, remember to give podcasts, not viruses. Don't forget, category pirates make a great gift. And uh, your spouse called and said it's okay. Buy as much category pirates as you'd like. Uh, remember, we will either have real dialogue or, ultimately, real violence. If you're like me, you're very concerned about the escalation of tensions in the United States and beyond, and the only way to break through is with real dialogue. Remember, the fast lane is the fast lane. Get out of the left-hand lane, please. Listen to Leonard Cohen. Joan Jett was right. Thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin. This odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Scott Omelonic, editor-in-chief of Stink, I mean Inc. magazine. Sorry, Scotty, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>